Sal Berry. I don't think people really collect cards. I feel like they're just chasing the same five cards. And Tim Parrish. Take your 9091 Pro Set card and stick it where the sun don't shine. This is the Puck Junk Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Puck Junk Hockey Podcast. I'm Sal Berry and with me is Tim Parrish, a.k.a. The Notorious DFG. Did I get that right? Is that your Twitter handle? I mean, it could be if you want it to be. I think that's a great sounding uh, Twitter. I guess I shouldn't go changing your uh, online identity so flippantly. I already get enough crap for the one I currently have, the real DFG. I've had that moniker since the mid-90s when I set up my first like email account on like Hotmail or something like that back in yeah. like 94. Yeah. So I had it for so long that I was able to avoid having numbers or anything else. And anything mm. else I set up going forward, I did the same thing. So I'm not one of those Bill Smith, bunch of numbers guys on Twitter. I actually right. have a real thing. But unfortunately, when I say the real DFG, technically, I'm not the real person. Because if you're looking for Rick Steiner, that's not me. <laughs> Well, we're going to change the subject from wrestling to baseball because this is a hockey podcast. So why not? Yeah, that Uh, makes sense. But, you know, I think as a collectibles podcast, we have to at least touch on this 1952 Topps Mickey Mantle baseball card that sold for $12.6 million in a heritage auction. Graded 9.5 by, get this, SGA, right? We think PSA. BGS? No, SGA. Wow. This basically doubles the record, almost doubles the record. Hannes Wagner's uh, T206 card sold last year for $6.6 million at auction. So this is $12.6 million, so about $6 million more. So not quite 50% more. But, you know, when you go, okay, $6.6 million for a baseball card, wow. Now we're at $12.6 million. For baseball card you've seen the austin power movies i have okay so remember when like dr evil goes back in time and he like demands of the white house he goes i want one billion dollars and they all start making fun of him and like oh why don't you ask for a bazillion dollars Ooh, right and they're all like making fun because it's like such an unimaginable amount of money that he's demanding that's what this feels like to me 12.6 million dollars for a piece of cardboard, slightly bigger than the 2.5 by 3.5 size that we've grown accustomed to over the last 50-ish years. But still, $12.6 million. Yeah, I mean, you're talking modern day, knowing how the hobby has been over the last, let's call it 24 months. With all of the hype and everything over the biggest cards that are out there, the highest grades that are out there. And everything getting all of that attention from not just collectors, but mainstream media, celebrities, influencers, and you name it. It was only a matter of time before something pushed 10 million, let alone now we're at 12. I just wonder, A, how many bids were there? Do we have access to that information? Probably. I didn't really look that hard, though, but I will say this. one. Yeah. one I'd like to know tid- how many bids and if it actually was paid for. Those are the two things I would like to know. <laughs> one tidbit that I caught in an article that I read was that basically the last $4 million of bidding happened in like that last hour. 
you know, they'll allow extended bidding. You know how that works, right? Where it's there's like right. a deadline, but then if somebody places a bid, then the bidding's open for another 10 minutes or whatever. Remember right. Yahoo auctions used to do that. It used to really annoy me. Yeah, I think that's silly. It's like the auction's over. Oh, wait, no, it's not. We're going to give other people a chance. Oh, right. Silly. Right. Look, it's in their interest, obviously, because, you know, the highest bidder wins. You want to make the most money as possible. So is something like this going to affect hockey cards? And I'm going to say yes and no. I'm going to give one of those ambiguous answers because I'm yes going to say. No. What are you, a lawyer? Yeah. Well, is it going to affect the value of hockey cards? I'm going to say no to 95% of hockey cards. And I'm going to say that it's just going to drive up the interest in the RCs of hockey's all-time greats, which, by the way, is going to be a conversation for later today when we talk about our uh, Mount Rushmore of hockey cards. More on that in a bit. But it's going to drive up the price of those hotly sought-after hockey cards, but not the other stuff. You know what I mean? It'll increase demand for Gretzky rookies, Lemieux rookies, or rookies, how rookies but not my Adam Oates rookie card or my uh, Ron Hextall rookie card or, you know, no, it's Martin certainly not gonna, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You aren't going to see the trickle-down effect from that. Even if you did at that point, it, you're talking cents rather than dollars. Right. So Well, no, but it's not going to increase any interest in those cards. It's just going to push the interest in some of the higher ticket items. And that's about it because that's how this works. People will probably go, oh, Michael Jordan, right? And that's going to affect the value of his cards and maybe, you know, Jim Brown for football. I would even say that this isn't even going to really push baseball all that much because, again, we're talking about a very, very, very specific card. Right. But you talk about the trickle-down thing. Let's face it. There's more focus on the other sports than there is on hockey when it comes to collectibles and, to use the bad word, investing and hobby-related cardboard. So, yeah, we might not see a trickle-down effect, but does that, the rising tide raises all ships, right? So could we see maybe a Peachy Gretzky rookie approaching 10 million? I don't know. If it's a high-graded version somebody you get the right people involved and you get the right push you never know well i mean the last one that was a psa 10 i think sold in the neighborhood of about four million so that's not out of the realm of possibility but it's a different sport with a different collector base huh possible maybe not probable right yeah you know and of course there's more gretzky rookies out there than high grade 52 mantles so it's a i'll say apples and oranges but it's like apples and easier to find oranges in the higher grades i would agree with that yes yeah so okay just wanted to talk about that for a minute a little bit of personal news here i will be a guest on the ttm cast which is a podcast about autograph collecting this saturday so september 2nd I will be a guest on the TTM cast with Drew and Jeff. I'll be talking about hockey cards and autograph collecting because they said, hey, we need more hockey on our show. So I was on their show. So you'll be able to listen to that in a couple of days. Once you're done listening to this podcast, you can listen to the TTM cast when that drops on Saturday. 
Another thing I just want to mention real quick. I mentioned uh, a couple podcasts ago that I was going to be selling at the Ludex card show, which happened on August 27th. I set up at that show. It was quite possibly the best one day card show I've ever been to. Really? Yes, it was fantastic. Let me tell you something. You're, you're talking like 70 years of card collecting and that's the best one day show ever. Wow. I got to hear this story. All right. I get there about seven 30. I shut up. I don't know if they were letting people in before nine, but nine o'clock people start coming in by nine, 10, the room is full. I mean, it was full. There were like just people everywhere. So the show is nine to four. And I would say that the show was busy from nine o'clock to about two thirty, three o'clock. So almost the whole time the show was busy. There was an autographed guest. Well, there were three autographed guests. The first one was a paid guest, was Andrew Vaughn of the White Sox. So people had to pay for his autograph, but it was relatively affordable. It was like 40, 50 bucks or something like that. It was more if you get like a jersey signed or a bat signed or whatever. But he was a big enough of a draw to bring people in. And then they had two guests and the autographs for them were free. Joe Creedy, who was on the 2005 White Sox, and Willie Galt, who was on the 1985 Chicago Bears. And so some people came later because they were interested in their autographs. Some people stuck around for everyone because they were going to get those autographs for free. There were a lot of first-time collectors. There were a lot of new collectors who were like, I like baseball and this is exciting. I can get autographs that are free or affordable. There were a lot of parents with kids. So a lot of children who were just kind of getting into it for the first time. But yeah, I mean, how does a dealer rate the success of a show if they sell a lot of stuff? How does a collector rate the success of a show if they find a lot of stuff that they want to buy or if they get autographs or something that they want? So this show had stuff that collectors wanted, casual to hardcore collectors, because there was lots to buy. There was like 100 tables of dealers. I mean, this was not a little show that was like 15 tables in like a church basement, like the one I used to run back in the 1990s. This was like the Rosemont Skyliner, which was right across the street from Allstate Arena. So it was a pretty big room. And uh, like I said, it was wall to wall with tables, like I said, but like 100 tables and lots of people there. Lots of dealers selling lots of different stuff. Autographs drew people in. The dealers had customers. The customers had stuff to look at and buy while they were waiting for autographs. So it was just like win, win, win all around. So I know that was a long-winded explanation. <laughs> I mean, no, it's there's been countless articles written and people talking about that the hobby is in a very healthy place right now. And you can clearly see that by going to these shows. The amount of foot traffic, the amount of people that are there. And not just that, it's not really the same set of people that were at these same shows two years ago. It's a different set of folks. Yes. It's a different group of people. It's fathers bringing their kids again. It's new people to the collecting. It's old people that have dusted stuff off. So, I mean, it's one of those things that I think it's good to see. Now, there's always a double-edged sword to this, and we've talked about that numerous times with the different things that go on with various people, but I like to see that kind of thing. I like to see the foot traffic. I like to see people, especially on these 
quote unquote smaller shows, even though this one seems to be pretty big. Like I said, it was it was around 100 t- tables, or at least that's what they advertised on the flyer. I didn't go around and, and count how many tables there were. But, you know, I mean, I'll give you like a for instance, my first two customers that morning were two ladies, maybe around in their 30s. They bought baseball cards and one of them bought a Chicago Wolves team set because she liked the Chicago Wolves minor league hockey team. You got rid of another one of those, huh? What, a Wolves set? Yeah. It was a good set, man. It was the 25th anniversary set, limited to 2,500 copies. Had all the all-time great Chicago Wolves like Wendell Young and Chris Chelios and Steve Malte. I think Skates is in there, too, even though technically he's not a player. But anyway, I said something that I thought was funny. But, of course, I thought it was funny because I said it. The dealer next to me, I leaned over to him and I said, you know, I said, I don't think people really collect cards. I feel like they're just chasing the same five cards. And he cracked up and he nodded. And he's like, yeah, I know what you mean. Because it's like a lot of people are just asking for the same freaking things over and over. Got any Ovechkin young guns. You know, people don't collect Alex Ovechkin. They collect that one card of Alex Ovechkin. Or they want that one card of Alex Ovechkin. So when they say, you got any Ovechkins, I go, yeah, I got a stack right there. And the card on the top of the stack might be like $5 or $10. And it'd be like, any young guns in there? I think I said very politely, I said, well, if I had a young gun, I wouldn't put it at the bottom of a stack or I wouldn't put it under a $5 card. And he's like, oh, okay. I was trying not to be a smart ass about it, but I was just kind of being kind of matter of factly like, yes, I'm hiding this card from you or just hiding it from everyone, hiding it from the world so they can't see it. You know what I mean? Because I don't really want to sell it. You can make that into like some kind of Easter egg hunt. You can be like, yes, I do have one. If you can find it, I'll give it to you for half of what it's marked. Just make sure you mark it like 10 grand or something. They want the same five things. They want an OV young gun or they want a Gretzky rookie or they want whatever. So it was, it was kind of funny because I kind of had my guard down. It was towards the end of the day. And a guy came up to me and he said, do you have any Gretzkys? And I just said, I'm sorry, I don't have any of his rookie cards. And then the guy was like, oh, no, I, I couldn't afford his rookie cards. I, I'm just looking for any Gretzky cards. I'm like, oh, well, I can help you then. And then he bought like a $10 card, a $5 card and a couple of like $1 and $2 cards. I might not have the $1,000 Gretzky rookie, but I got a lot of cool stuff in that like $5 to $20 range. It's just so many people are fixated on investment, investment, investment. I can see you definitely running into that because when you have so many people wanting the top young gun or the top rookie card in the highest condition graded by God knows who Mm -hmm. over and over and over and over again, the rare guy that's like, do you have a commons box I can look through? You're just like, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> like a real collector. Look. Well, I don't bring commons, but like, you know, no, like I, I said, know. like I... the $1 cards, $2 cards. Like I'm not... simplifying, but yeah. Yeah, I mean... exactly. Commons to like the hit chaser. Oh, the that's hit... only a $20 card. I'm not interested, you know. Yeah. Your dollar to $10 boxes are the cards that the hit chaser throws in the garbage can. Pretty much. Don't get anything. And like we always say, collect what you like. So, I mean, if you like collecting the $1,000 cards, $2,000 cards, $10,000 cards, hey, man, more power to you. That's great. Everybody likes something. And I can't be everything to everybody, but I could be something to a lot of people. And that's what this show was like. It was a good show. 
And I'll be at the next LUDX show, which is going to be September 24th. So just under a month away. They haven't announced autograph guests yet, but, you know, if you're in or around Chicago. Oh, our friend John, Blades of Steel, dropped by. He and his wife and his kid, they dropped by and chatted for a bit, which was oh, fun. Cool. Yeah, because I don't think I've seen him without a mask, because every time we've met, we've both been wearing masks because of the pandemic. So it's just like, oh, wait, I've never actually seen your whole face before. I recognized the voice, but not the face at first. You know what I mean? And when I looked, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, I know you. <laughs> it was kind of neat, you know, and then there was a dealer who knew me from another show. So one thing that's kind of cool about selling at a lot of different shows kind of spread out is that I'm starting to see people over and over and you start to build connections and kind of make friendships and stuff like that. That's good. So uh, we're going to talk video games. And in full disclosure, the last new hockey video game I bought was NHL 14. So I am by no means a video game expert, even though I've written, you know, articles about hockey video games, but they're the old ones like NHL 94 and stuff like that. So the NHL 23 cover is going to have two players on it. Trevor Zegras, our budding superstar from the Anaheim Ducks, and Sarah Nurse, who is from the Canadian women's Olympic team a national team, and the two of them are going to be on the cover together. And I think it's pretty cool that EA is now really adding women's players to the games and even featuring one on a cover. And this is like the first time a female player has been featured on an NHL cover. So I, I think it's pretty cool. I think it's absolutely cool. And I like the cover and I liked all of the demo photo shoots. There was also a bunch of videos from those photo shoots that got released as well, which was kind of cool. But, you know, in typical fashion, you know, okay, they come out with this every year. Big deal. Well, it's kind of like Madden. Everybody wonders who's going to be on the cover. Who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? Oh, whoever it is is going to get hurt in the first week of the season because it's the Madden curse and blah, blah, blah. We don't really have the NHL curse necessarily. Well, but, I'm going to stop you right there, my friend. I actually wrote an article for the Hockey News about the NHL cover curse. I don't know if it's as much of a curse as the Madden one is. Well, okay, the Madden one was more about injuries than the NHL one. I mean, look, the first 10 seasons, you had guys who didn't make the playoffs on the year that they were featured on the cover. And guys that were eliminated in the first round. Now, I'll link to my article because it's actually on the Hockey News website. Then you had Joe Thornton, and then you had Danny Heatley, and then you had Patrick Kane, and then you had Patrick Kane again. Obviously, it's all just a coincidence, but still. I don't say there's some higher power going on there, but it's just kind of fun to talk about. I would much rather take missing the playoffs over being injured. (laughs) Just me personally, but you know. That's all I'm saying about that. Well, you know, when you're on the cover of a game and then your team doesn't make the playoffs, that's just kind of funny. Yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying when it comes to that. I think it's it's one of those things where it's like, okay, as much as I don't think the Madden curse is real, it's hard to argue that it's not. There's been very few seasons where the person on the cover or people on the cover or whoever didn't have some kind of crap happen to them. So. You know, when this came out and you've got both of them on the cover, 
And I'm thinking, oh, this is cool. But of course, in typical fashion, social media just blows up with people either praising it or just railing the whole idea of having not only two players on the cover, but an NHL player, since it's NHL 23, and also technically a non-NHL player, being that you have nurse on there. So I don't understand what people's problems are. It's, oh, a, stinking, you. it's a stinking video game cover, for God's sake. Who cares? The haters are mad that a woman's on the cover of a video game. Big freaking deal. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Boo F and who? It's gotten to the point now where this, it, this is silly. Who cares what's on the cover? What matters is the game. I don't play NHL. I haven't in years. But from what I know of the last probably five years of the NHL release, it's been basically the same cookie cutter game, mm-hmm. just recycled over and over and over again. They haven't really made any super major changes or fixed the gameplay from what I've heard from people. So it's like, if you're going to complain about anything, complain about the fact that they just keep recycling the same shell of a game and slapping a new cover on it. They did make two improvements or uh, add two new features to this game. One is that they said they added another 200 animations. They call it like last chance attempts. Kind of like if the player's falling forward and he still tries to get a shot off or something like that, which seemed kind of interesting. You know, like if a player gets tripped or something, he doesn't just give up. He still tries to make a play. So they added some of that to this game or 200 moves of that or 200 animations or whatever, which is intriguing because that's kind of realism that I like. I mean, we'll never forget Alex Ovechkin scoring a goal on his back. That's awesome. If anything, I feel like sticks break too much in EA hockey games because it's like, come on, do we really need to have that? I feel like that kind of thing takes away from the fun. But I think the other stuff, like the player's stumbling and he still gets a shot off or something like that, or the player's lying down and he still bats at the puck with the stick or something, I think that's cool. The other thing is that there's uh, cross-platform play. If you have a PlayStation 4, you could play with people who have Xbox One. And if you have a PlayStation 5, you could play with people who have an Xbox Series X or S. So that's kind of neat. Because I don't think there's been a cross-platform nope. one yet. So Not for NHL, no. That's kind of cool, but I think, I think I was talking more of the actual gameplay. Right. I mean, yeah, you added a couple cut screen videos and whatever, but I mean, okay. In my mind, that's lipstick on a pig, you know? I watched the trailer for the game, and I just said, wow, this looks like a lot of fun. I really want to get me a next-gen system. And then I think about it, and I go... I'm going to play the game for an hour and then I'm just going to forget I had it, right? Because I remember when I got an Xbox 360. Now, this was kind of on its last legs at this point. But I got one in 2012 because it was like a lot cheaper by then. And I bought NHL 12 or maybe I got it in 2011 and and then I bought NHL 12 because it just came out. And like I played it for a little bit. But it was like I played with some friends and we were all so terrible at the game. This is actually a pretty funny story. My friends and I, we played two on two. We're playing, you know, for 360 because it's like 2011. We were so terrible at the game. 
I think the game either ended in a 0-0 tie, which I know there are no ties in hockey now. There's shootouts. I can't remember, like, if we if somebody scored a fluky goal, but, like, literally the whole game went 0-0 because we just could not <laughs> figure out how to score, which is funny because that makes us sound like old people trying to play this this Nintendo game and this newfangled thing and what's, ah, what's with all these buttons, right? So then I remember it also had AHL players. So they're like, all right, so we played as AHL teams and we couldn't score. We were just so bad at this game, we could not score. So we kept dropping down. Then we played as Swedish teams or Finnish teams, I can't remember. And we were finally able to score goals because the goalies weren't that good at that level. So like kind of a terrible shot that an NHL goalie would have just stopped, at least in that game. A Swedish elite league goalie had some trouble stopping. So we actually had a game that went to like four to two. And like I, when I get we used it. to play Super Tecmo Bowl and we put a ban on you couldn't be the 49ers, you couldn't be the Raiders, and you couldn't be the Bills. Right. You could be any other team but those three because those three had the, the biggest cheats. Right. Well, Bo Jackson was the biggest cheat of all in that game. You couldn't stop Bo Jackson. The one, I can't remember the actual play, but essentially he took Joe Montana, ran him all the way back to the end zone, chucked the ball, and Jerry Rice was running across the top of the screen, and he would catch it every time. Joe Montana throw the ball like 75 yards in the air. And then the other one was uh, the Bills, because if you lined up Bruce Smith just right behind the, mm-hmm. the center and the tackle there, as soon as you hike the ball, you hit the button, and he dove across the line and sacked the quarterback. So nobody can be these three teams. You can be anybody else. I didn't have that with hockey, though. Oh, well, with NHL 94, you had Jeremy Roenick, especially in the Sega version with the weight bug. Nobody ever banned Roenick from our game playing. No, I guess not. You know, one thing we used to do, though, to make things interesting is, I remember my friend and I would play Kings versus Penguins, and we would take out Barrasso and Rudy, and we'd put in their backups. So we'd put in Reggett and... Um, I think who would have been the the backup on the Kings? I think it was Rick Nickel actually, because he played some games in ninety two, ninety three. So I think he would have been the uh, the backup in ninety three, ninety four. I think Nickel versus Reggett was what we'd do, just so we'd end up getting a lot of goals in the game. Although, admittedly, Kent Reggett was a damn fine goaltender, so he was probably a little underrated in NHL ninety four. Yeah, I didn't play that one too much because that was on Sega, and I didn't have a Sega. Right. It was also on SNES. I didn't have Super Nintendo either. I had the original. Did you have an Atari? No, I I did have an Atari. Um, But I had the original NES. Mm -hmm. I didn't get Super Nintendo. Next one I had was a 64. Oh, okay. All right. You skipped a generation. And then I had a GameCube. And then I had a Wii. And now I have a Switch. So uh, anyway, NHL 23 coming out in probably a month or so. Video games are pretty low on my priority list because, like I said, they're so realistic now. I don't want to say it's not fun, but it's almost like you have to train, really train. It's not like practicing, like when we played Super Mario Brothers and you would practice like a short jump, a long jump, running and jumping, all these little things. You kind of pick that up as you play. But I feel like a lot of these games, especially the hockey games, because you got to use the two sticks, the the two thumbsticks. 
one to control the direction of the player and one to control their stick, which is a really cool mechanic, but also that's just a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah, it is. By the way, there's going to be two different versions of the NHL 23 game. There's two different covers and, um, you know, there's one they're calling the X factor version, which basically that version of the game has a lot more digital assets that you get with the game, like the packs that you can get for the hockey ultimate team and stuff like that. But then also if say you have a PlayStation four and you buy the X factor version, if you get a PlayStation five, you can transfer all your stuff to the PlayStation five version of that game. So the disc will have the PlayStation four and PlayStation five version it'll be Ford's compatible. So it's like if you have an Xbox one and you buy the um, X factor edition, then it'll have both the um, Xbox one and Xbox series XS version on it. And then that way, if you upgrade your system, you can port your stuff over to the new system and not lose any of your progress, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. For a gamer. Yeah. Yeah. They're thinking ahead, you know, they're thinking, you know, we want to sell you this game now, but we realize that you might not have the next system, but you might get the next system by Christmas, right? Because then you're thinking, oh, well, I don't want to buy the game for my PS4 because I might get a PS5 Christmas and then I got to buy the PS5 version. So then you get this version that's basically forwards compatible. Basically, the data is forwards compatible, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just not a gamer guy anymore. I barely play anything. Kids always ask me to play. Occasionally, I'll jump on some Mario Kart. It's pretty much it anymore. Yeah, I bought an S Classic, and I was, like, playing through Legend of Zelda, but then even then I got bored, because I'm like, ah, I got other stuff to do. Well, if I still had my NES, I'd be rocking some Tyson's Punch-Out. But other than that. Yeah. Yeah, it was a good game. Okay, let's talk hockey cards. So we're going to go with that tired trope of the Mount Rushmore of... You know, everybody, well, what's the Mount Rushmore of the Chicago Bulls? What's the Mount Rushmore of the New York Yankees? What's the Mount Rushmore of soft drinks? Got to have Dr. Pepper on there for sure. I'll tell you what's not on that list of soft drinks. What? Coca-Cola Dream Flavor. Have you seen that in the stores? No. Yeah, so. It's like Dreamsicle or what? No, 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 no. Let me tell you. All these pop companies are making different flavors and stuff and and whatever. So far, so good. Like on most of the Mountain Dew flavors, I'm good with those. Like, I I don't mind those. Of course, I only drink diet or zero. So I have a limited number, but I've tried the other ones. Fine. Coke has a bunch of different weird ones. And so they have one, you can get a bottle of Coke. It's called Dream Flavor. It's got a blue label on it. I'm sorry, but that may have been the absolute worst thing I ever put in my mouth in my entire life ever. And I know that sounds disgusting, but it could have been the worst. It tastes God awful. It's horrible. I don't know what they tried to make it taste like, but it tastes horrible. (laughs) I think it's supposed to be some kind of tropical fruit, but it doesn't work. No, it does not work at all. It's horrible. Do not buy it. And I'm almost thinking that they knew it was a mistake, but they put too much money into it. So they decided to slap a blue label on it instead of a red one. So people think it's actually Pepsi. Hmm. That's what I'm thinking. 
sorry, not to get off track, but that will not be on a Mount Rushmore of pop for me. That's for sure. Mount Pop more. I like it. Unless you're from a different part of the country, then it's Mount Soda more. We're going to cover that in our other podcast called uh, the Pop Junk Podcast, which will be all about soft drinks. I feel my teeth rotting just from talking about it. (laughs) Mount Rushmore, as you know, national landmark in South Dakota, has giant head sculptures of four presidents, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Theodore Roosevelt, Abraham Lincoln. I knew that, but I had to look it up anyways just to be sure, because I was like, Washington... You looked that up, come on. Lincoln... Maybe Jefferson. I'm um, just trying to remember. Right. I guess what's kind of funny about that is, I guess at the time, those were considered like the four greatest presidents, or actually, according to the artists, they were the presidents during like very important parts in America's history. But I think a lot of people now conflate that with the best, like the four best, and maybe not the four most important during certain eras, right? You could say, like, who are the four best Pittsburgh Penguins versus who was the best Penguin during this era of the team, who was the best Penguin during that era of the team, or whatever. You know what I mean? So we have that. It's easy if you narrow it down to little small bits. You know, you say eras or certain lines or certain whatever. Right. It's definitely much easier to do, but yeah. There were four presidents that from the perspective of the artists and those that were choosing, that was the people that were the iconic ones that came to mind that should have been put up there at the time. So Now, here's the thing. I would actually maybe have an easier time doing this for the four greatest hockey players versus the four greatest hockey cards. Because even though there's definitely an overlap with those two things, I have my list of four, you have your list of four, we're going to hash that out but keep in mind we do not know what's on either of our lists no but that's the funny thing is that you could say this player was really great but then you say well but you know this player is one of the all-time greats arguably one of the top four players but then you'd be like well but would their hockey card be one of the best four of all time on that mount rushmore right so that was the thing i struggled with a little bit so I'm going to just start this out with the card that I know is on both of our lists, and that is the 1991 score Eric Lindros future superstar card. I don't know whose list you're talking about, but it's yeah, not no, on mine. I'm just kidding. No, 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 no. That is not on my list oh. at all. I think the card that we're going to start with, because I think that's it's a false start, flag on the yeah, play. That's a flag on the play, right? False start. I love it. The Gretzky rookie, 79-80, Wayne Gretzky rookie. Now, I'm putting both Tops and OPG because at least from distinguishing. The, well, from the front, they look the same. And they're sure. both card number 18. I know one's bilingual, one's worth more because it's bilingual and it's the OPG version. But the Tops version is actually the most graded hockey card because there's more of them. So more of them were submitted for grading. There's more high-grade examples of a Tops and an Opeachy. Not saying it's more valuable. We're not necessarily talking about value. Because, I mean, you could probably, you know, say, oh, a George's Vezina rookie card or whatever, right? But that didn't make my list. But I think we both agree that the Gretzky rookie card is definitely on that list, no matter what. 
Is that actually on your list? It is. Okay. So if that is actually on your list, then I will concur because that is also on my list. Easily the most sought after card that's out there, whether you get it graded, whether it's raw, this is a significant card because basically when it comes to anything hobby related, if this card gets mentioned, it gets attention, whether it's from a casual hockey collector or somebody that doesn't collect hockey cards at all. I think most collectors and even sports people in general understand the significance of this card so that's why i think it definitely deserves its place up there yeah sure it's one of the most valuable cards that's out there um it frequently sells in higher grades in the hundreds of thousands of dollars uh upwards of millions of dollars i mean here's the other thing too it's a pretty iconic set that this comes from also I put that into some of my reasoning too, because that 7980 design, that's an iconic design. I mean, that's the first year that they moved away from that white border of their cards and made a different color border that is full bleed all the way to the edge. So there's one of the reasons right there why the card is difficult to get in higher grades. But I mean, those cards look great. You know, well, that, I mean, that blue is so different than what people were used to up to that point. There were full bleed borders in 72, 73, and 73, 74, but you're right, from 74, 75 to 78, 79, yeah, you had white borders. White, 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 white. Right. So, you know, this was different. The other thing, too, is if you think about it, this was the first year that you had all the new NHL teams. So you had Edmonton, of course, with Gretzky. You had the Jets, you had yep. the Nordiques, and you had the Whalers. We're right. all included in that set. Not to mention, you also have the last cards for like Bobby Hall, Stan Makita, Gordy Howe. Gary uh, Cheevers, Ken Dryden. Dryden. Dryden was the other one I was thinking of. Cheevers, that's right. Cheevers is in there too. So like, you know, you have the first card of arguably one of the greatest players ever. And you have the last cards of some of arguably the greatest players ever. Right. So it's definitely not only just an iconic card, but it's an iconic set. So to be able to put, in my mind, a representation of a set like that and use the Gretzky card as the cornerstone to that, I think is well-deserved. Absolutely. I mean, it's a card that every hockey card collector wants, even if they're kind of like a casual or semi-serious collector they would want that card unfortunately it's kind of become a card that like not a lot of people can really afford or if they do afford it they have to really think hard about it this is not a casual purchase anymore True. but uh, like i said yeah it is the most graded hockey card at least the tops one is we can argue if grutsky is the greatest of all time or not but it's either the rookie card of the greatest of all time in hockey or one of the greatest of all time in hockey. I mean, all time point leader, all time goal leader, maybe not for much longer, but as of right now, obviously it's an important card. So that would definitely be up there. Right. I think we're in agreement on that. That's what you got to remember is the object of the exercise here is we're not necessarily naming the best players, but we're naming the most iconic cards that would represent all of hockey cards. To be able to look up there and say, yeah, that would be the ones right there. So, And there's no wrong wanna... answers to this, unless you no. don't agree with me. Then, then you're wrong. I'm just kidding. So do you want to throw out what you think the next one would be? 
and I'll let you know if I, I have really that have on my mine. list. I don't really have mine in order, so I'll throw mm-hmm. out what I have. Well, I mean, just one at a time, man. Let's, yeah. let's tease this oh, out. I'll, so I'll, I'll throw maybe one. one that you think that I have on my list as well. Okay. So I'll give you one, and in my mind, it's one of two cards, but I chose this one, and I'll tell you why. And I went with the uh, 51 Parkhurst Gordie Howe. Yes. Card number 66. Agree. Now, here's my reasoning. Certainly, most collectors, and you don't even have to be a collector, you could just use the eye appeal, would say that the 54 tops is a better looking card. Nicer colors, it hits different. But I think it's really hard to argue that the Parkhurst card isn't a much more important card and a much more historically significant card. Number one, it's pretty much Gordie Howe's only rookie card like legit rookie card and you know to me again this goes into not only the card itself but where does the card come from and this is from a set that's checklist i mean you look back on this checklist today i mean this is the stuff of legends right here um you know there's only 105 cards in this set but 31 of the cards are all hall of famers you've got Terry Sawchuck and Doug Harvey and Red Kelly and Ted Lindsay and Del Vecchio and Butch Bouchard and Rocket Richard. This is like a who's who of the Hall of Fame are all in the set and many of them are rookie cards. So it's a very significant card because it comes from a very iconic type set. Now, you know, for those that haven't maybe seen this one, because it's probably not as widely displayed a lot of times when you find people that have older hockey cards you know these are those small like postage stamp looking pictures you know very small kind of an off-white color the backs are blank again this is condition sensitive kind of like the Gretzky is but even more so condition sensitive because these came from as the story goes there were like 20 uncut sheets that would all be stacked on top of each other and then they'd be chopped with the, what do they call it, the guillotine mm-hmm. slicer thing. And then in order to get them collated, they threw them into a cement mixer. Mm-hmm. So all these cars were thrown in the cement mixer, rolled around, blah, 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 stuck in packs. So condition on these was definitely not a high priority. These are hard to find that aren't you know, damaged or dented or worn and, and stuff like that. Plus the paper was fragile back then and that kind of stuff fades over time but from a significant standpoint i think that gordie howe rookie card stands out as one because a you got one of the greatest players ever and as we just said you know his last card being in the same set that gretzky's first card is in here's his first rookie and your first chance to to see one of the greatest players of all time on a piece of cardboard i think that makes this stand out as probably one of the greatest and most important hockey cards that exists. So a couple things about the 51-52 Parkhurst Gordie Howe rookie card. 51-52 Parkhurst is considered the first modern hockey card set because up until that point, you only had kind of hockey cards here and there. You had some in the 19 teens, like 10-11 and 11-12. You had some in the 20s. You had some in the 30s. 
regional releases and tobacco and food issue and well but you had like and stuff like that cards you had cards that came with chocolates you had some hockey cards you're right like regional releases or food issues right it wasn't like an actual set that was annual 51 52 was really i mean we didn't have 56 57 we didn't have hockey cards that year but that's really the beginning of hockey card collecting was that point forward because pretty much every year from that point forward there was a set of cards so Gordie Howe I mean he was the greatest until Gretzky he was the leading point scorer until Gretzky he played 26 seasons in the NHL he has the record for being the oldest player at 52 to play in the NHL and he's Mr. Hockey right so it's the rookie card of the man nicknamed Mr. Hockey. Yeah, I almost was, forgot about the important part. He's yeah. named Mr. Hockey. <laughs> Mr. Hockey, right? So, I mean, yeah. that's the thing. I mean, this is not just like... You have I, to have Mr. Hockey on Mount Rushmore. Right. He's is Mr. Hockey, and so the rookie card of Mr. Hockey would be important, but also that set is important. Now, if 51-52 didn't have Gordie Howe's rookie card... And I don't know, then it might not be as important. But I, I think that, like, because it's the first modern hockey set and it has Gordie Howe, or because it's Gordie Howe's rookie card and it's from the first modern set of hockey trading cards, that makes it one of the greatest hockey cards of all time. And in all the things that he did. I mean, granted, what the players do on the ice affects the value and the desirability and the collectability of these cards. If Gordie Howe was an average player, it wouldn't matter that he had a card in 51-52 Parkers. But he was an extraordinary player, again, Mr. Hockey, and it was a significantly important set. So that just makes it a no-brainer as to why this card would be on our hockey Mount Rushmore. Right. Like I said, that's one of the things I take into consideration when I'm looking at these. It's not just the player, but the card itself. What does the card actually mean overall? And, you know, to your point, yeah, if Hal wasn't in there, would it be as significant of a set? I think it still would. It's got a ton of rookie cards in it. You know, rookie card by definition. I mean, technically, Dory Howe wasn't a rookie per se, but that was right. his first card. You know, he had already been in the league for six years at that point. But yeah, to the bigger point, these are iconic cards that you could see up there on the mountain. So we've got two up there. Yes. Okay, so I'm going to throw out what I think the third card would be. I had to think hard about this one. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought this card really needed to be on that list. And that is the 1966-67 Topps Bobby Orr rookie card. Wow. Did that make your cut too? We're just falling in line, aren't we? Well, I think the last one is going to be where we're really going to Are we going to fight or what? I don't think we're going to fight. We're just going to agree on everything here. Well, yeah, no, I have that too. That's what I have Here's the thing. Too. I want to have newer cards on this list. Trust me, I do. And maybe we'll get there when we get to the fourth card. The thing about or I mean, there's a couple of things. For a long time, this was a more sought-after rookie card than Gretzky's rookie card. I remember a couple years back... Pre-pandemic, of course, I remember Gretzky rookies being, you know, like 
600 to 800, obviously more if an OPG, more if graded, condition sensitive. But let's just say Gretzky was like a $700 rookie card for tops and maybe a thousand for OPG. And then Bobby Orr was like 3000. Do you see what I mean? Like his card was worth like two to three times what Gretzky was selling for. Now, granted, his card was more than 10 years older. And there were less hockey cards printed in 66, 67 than 79, 80. I'm sure of it. But Bobby Orr revolutionized the game of hockey. He was a significant player. He played 10 years, basically, a little over 10 years. I mean, those those last couple games, the Blackhawks shouldn't really count. But, um, 12, but yeah. yeah, 12. Yeah, OK, you're right. But I mean, so for a long time, this was more sought after than a Gretzky or Howe rookie card. It's condition sensitive like the Gretzky because this has brown borders because it has like a TV set design or did transform the game of hockey. Yeah. And there's a test issue card, but I don't want to get into that. I mean, we can mention I was gonna that. Say, do you have the regular or do you have the test or do you have both? Nah, because the test issue is basically a variant. It's a parallel of this, let's just say. We really don't know how many there are either. No, they were sold in California, and they had an English-only text on the back. And I think that set was just limited to 66 cards and not 132, if I remember correctly. There were only only 66. And I read something that they are now thinking that there were a couple candy stores, apparently in New York, that also had the boxes with the test cards in it. Makes sense. I mean, Tops was based in New York. Yeah. So, like, you know, a lot of people thought for a long time that these were, you know, West Coast and I think parts of Canada only. But um, I've read something that said that they think they're almost positive that there were a couple candy stores back in New York back in that time that also had the test print ones, too. So that's besides the point. It's just like you said, it's a variation Desirable one, but it's a variation. Right. Okay, so we're in agreement on this card as well. Oh, definitely. These seem pretty straightforward and logical. I mean, like you said, I mean, Bobby Orr, he's considered one of the most dominant defensemen of his time, of all time, even. I mean, sure, there's been plenty of greats, but no one as great as Bobby Orr. I think you said he revolutionized the game in, in his position. I mean, just look at it. He finished like third in Norris Trophy his rookie season. And then proceeded to win eight straight. Right. <laughs> no one's ever done that. So, you know, knee injuries basically derailed him. So imagine what he could have done had he not gotten hurt or had the chronic injury. He probably could have played another five, six seasons easily if it wasn't been for that. I like to think that if he didn't have knee injuries, I'd like to think he would have played until about 42, 44. Like he played in 66 at 18. So let's see. By 86, he would have been 38. I like to fantasize that he would have played until 1990. So he would have been 42. And I would have got to have seen him play his last two years, like when I got into hockey. Kind of like I got to see Guy Lafleur play, although Lafleur is younger than Orr. But still, you know what I mean? That's just something I always like to, to think like, oh, man, if he didn't have those injuries. But then again, would he want to be a second pair defenseman, right? Like... Part of the reason why Chris Chelios played such a long time is because he was willing to be that second or third pair defenseman. 
or a healthy scratch sometimes because that's just kind of how his career went at the end. But guys like Orr and Gretzky, it's almost like they need those minutes. Well, actually, I can't say that about Orr because I never saw him play. You know what I mean? Like to be successful, they need to have those big minutes and they need to have all their tools in their toolbox, right? Right. Maybe not. I don't know. You know, I don't know that he could have lasted that long, but I think he would have lasted definitely way longer than he. Maybe he would have become a defensive defenseman in the last eight years or six years of his game and then just excelled at that. You know what I mean? Kind of like Mark Howe, right? That would have been interesting. You know, I mean, Mark Howe played until like, what, his early 40s? And remember, he started out as a forward and then he became a defenseman later on in his career. Yeah, that's I mean, that's always one of those what ifs. I mean, there's so many players that, you know, had injuries derail their careers that you can look back on and be like, what if, you know? Right. And maybe that's what adds to Bobby Orr's mystique a little bit. He had 10 awesome seasons and then he tried to make a comeback and he didn't feel that he was good enough and he retired. That's understandable. Nobody holds those seasons that he played with the Blackhawks against him necessarily because he was so amazing for the first 10 years of his career. So, I mean, you just look at that and you're just like, wow. He doesn't need a bigger body of work to be considered the greatest. Right. Hands down. He's, he's, he's there. So any other thoughts about his hockey card before we debate the last one? I mean, other than the fact that, I mean, it's just a cool looking card, that old timey wood grain border. That's the same. I mean, it's basically the same design as the football design, you know, with the, with the old TV screen. The old color TV screen there. I mean, it's it's just a really cool, really cool design. I think anytime they throw like the wood border stuff on there, it, it gives it kind of a classic feel. That's why people like '87 tops baseball so much because that yeah. border. Well, you know, I actually had a wood bordered TV. My next door neighbors were an elderly couple. This is when I was in high school, and they bought a new TV. And this is like 1992. And they said, hey, we're throwing out our TV from 1972. Do you want it? And I'm like, yeah, because I didn't have my own TV in my room. And this thing was huge. Okay, because it had a huge glass screen, right? And it had that speaker on the side and it had like the knobs. But the thing was like the size of a dresser. And I used to put stuff on top of it. And I remember just I used to sit on the floor and play video games on it. That's all I really used it for. I couldn't get good reception on it, but it was perfect for playing video games. I see like those. Was it the hi-fi style one that you lifted up the top and had a record player in it too? Nope. Nope. It wasn't like that at all. Although I did used to put my record player on top of it. It did not have a record player built into it, but it was massive. It was a big television. But yeah, so it's it's a pretty awesome looking card of an awesome player who was important in hockey. And that card has tons of value because of this player's accolades, but also because of the scarcity of hockey cards in the sixties. And then also the condition sensitivity of that set. Absolutely. All right. So you're up. You want to throw out what you think the fourth card would be? I can do that before I go with this one. There's many, many cards out there that I could have picked. In fact, there's one in particular that I think most people were probably anticipating me picking. And I can assure you, it's not going to be that one. So, 
I'm not going to name all those other cards. We can put those in the consolation bracket. But I am going to say this. My fourth most important hockey card that's going to go on Mount Rushmore is, you ready? Mm-hmm. The 9091 Pro Set Stanley Cup Hologram. Wow. Huh? Huh? Off the grid on that one. That is off We're the expecting grid. that. All right. So let me explain why. Because you're thinking, everybody listening is going, what? A card from a crappy overproduced set? Yes. And here's why. So here we are 30-some years later, right? This is still one of the most sought-after chase cards ever printed by any company in the history of hockey cards. Plain and simple. It is, you know, and this, this term gets used all the time for stupid reasons, but this is literally the holy grail of hockey card inserts. And this was a big deal card then, and it's a big deal card now. There are still people to this day that will buy cases of Series 1 still searching for this card. Why? Well, because they're hand-numbered to 5,000. So you think, well, 5,000 cards, that's not scarce. But when you consider the amount of ProSet cards that flooded onto the market and were printed, maybe are even still being printed in somebody's basement at this point. But how many were just flooding the market back in a time where they call it the junk wax era? Well, this is one of the reasons, because the printers were turned on and they weren't turned off. And the fact that there were 5,000 of these made, that would be like saying something today is numbered out of 100. I would think I would put it on the same lines. Like today's releases numbered out of a hundred versus back then numbered out of 5,000, but that's neither here nor there. That's just one reason. But considering there haven't really been that many overall that have surfaced and people are still out there hunting for these makes this an iconic car. First of all, it's the Stanley Cup. Yes, it's a hologram. It's showing new printing technology that hadn't existed up to that point. They're using holograms to put on a, a sports card, which, yeah, you can say that the Lombardi trophy came out first, which ProSet did, but that's fine. We're not talking about football. And yeah, Upper Deck used holograms on the backs of their cards and they had little sticker inserts and stuff. Yeah, great. Fine. But this was a new, kind of a new technology for that. So it highlights that. It's a chase card that people didn't really know what those were necessarily at this point. And the fact that it still holds value, even though, A, this company doesn't exist anymore. Technically, are there ProSet cards? Yes. Leaf revived it. They own the brand now. But ProSet declared Chapter, what was it, Chapter 7 bankruptcy back in 94. Mm -hmm. And I think they... They owed like almost a million dollars in like royalties that they hadn't paid to, I think it's the NFL. The company disappeared off the face of the planet. And 
yet here it is to this day, people still searching the product and finding the product to open it and rip it to look for this card. You can't tell me that's not significant. That's extremely significant. And here's the other thing. So many people are into grading now, and it's just this whole thing of everything's got to be graded. Grade everything. Ultra modern, vintage, junk wax there. It doesn't matter. Grade everything because it's going to be worth so much more. If you look in the population reports for PSA, BGS, and SGC, so arguably the three biggest grading companies, Mm -hmm. 83 of these were graded by PSA. 83. That's it. 64 by BGS. And only eight by SGC. So 83, 64, and eight. That doesn't even dent the 5,000 that supposedly exist. It's like less than 5% of the print run. Yeah. So if there were more of these out there, I think more people would have probably tried to get them graded. The other thing, too, is they don't grade very high because most of them aren't in that grade of shape. Because there's all sorts of things that could have happened to them, especially considering the ones that are being graded. A lot of them are ones that have recently been unearthed Mm -hmm. because they've been pulled out of packs. So, look, it's the Stanley Cup. It's the best trophy in all of sports, the hardest trophy to win in all of sports. Every hockey player grows up wanting to to win, and they always pretend that they won the Stanley Cup. And you get your name engraved on the Stanley Cup. And it's an iconic trophy. How can you not take the iconic trophy for the sport, put it on a card, and stick it up on Mount Rushmore? That's really my reasoning. The fact that it's one of the rarest cards made in an era where there was nothing remotely close to anything defining the word rare. And it's still chased today. Now, if we look at the 90s, just a decade of the 90s, by the late 90s, there were hockey cards that were printed in less quantities than 5,000. And there are some late 90s Gretzky cards that had like print runs of 499 and 999 or all the cards, right? Because you had companies that would do like parallel sets. And sure. we're starting to see like a lot of those Ranger era Gretzky cards have interest because at least the numbered parallel versions. But I would argue that this... Pro set Stanley Cup hologram is the most valuable hockey card from the 90s. I cannot argue against that. So the Stanley Cup hologram, limited to 5,000 copies, like you said, and numbered on the back. I have one that doesn't have a number on the back, that doesn't have the hand numbering. I don't know if it was a proof, or I don't know if Pro set also put them in packs that weren't numbered because they kept doing print runs of series one. So I know originally they said they were going to be 500 copies of the Stanley cup card. Then that became 5,000 in later reports. So I don't know if originally it was 500 and then it became 5,000 or if like the earlier reports and press releases said 500, but then when the set actually came out, it was 5,000. And then when they, did more and more print runs because you could still buy series one packs when series two was out and they printed like corrected cards. So like there's a corrected Dave Manson card and a corrected Peter Stastny card, et cetera, et cetera. So obviously they did later print runs if they were correcting these errors that they made. So now the question is, do packs that have the corrected 
pro set cards also have Stanley Cup holograms in them potentially, right? I don't know. Yeah, we don't, we don't know. We don't know. And that's the thing. And the card is hard to find in good condition, even in like okay condition. It's like a $700 card. I mean, you're looking based on condition, $300 to $800 right now. Even graded or ungraded, it doesn't matter because if it looks nice and it's not graded, it's probably going to go for the higher amount of that. And if it's like a PSA 3 or 4, it's probably going to go for the lower amount. But it the is fact an that iconic. There's only 155 graded, though, of the top three grading companies. I mean, that's right. craziness. Right. It's absolute craziness that something like this is that scarce. And the thing was, it was always rumored that these were like one per case. But as you've seen over time, I mean, there was a guy that recorded, and I can't remember who it was, but there was, there was a guy with a YouTube video mm-hmm. busting open case upon case of this. I think he did three cases and didn't find a single one. I believe it. Yeah. So these have to be less than a case, which basically causes you to open more packs. So right. you open more packs and you wipe out the shelves and the guy says, hey, I need more of that ProSet stuff. And ProSets like, we got you. And they roll it on out. And it's just like, you know, here it is to this day. There's 5,000 of these cards, but there might be 500 of them floating around out there. Right. And, you know, I consider that to be iconic. And again, based on my criteria, I consider the power of the set itself. And if you go back to the 9091 Pro set, set, it's iconic. It's an iconic set for that era because of the fact that it came out in the time where there were other brands now to compete with tops. It had a gigantic checklist. And it's famous for, A, the colors, because it stood out. Mm-hmm. B, the list of players on the checklist, I mean, it had included lots of players that wouldn't normally be seen on a card. And three, you already mentioned it, all the stinking errors. There are so many and so many variations and everything else that on one hand, it became a joke of itself. But on the other hand, that pushed it to an even higher iconic level, I think, especially over time. For the nostalgia seekers that are always looking to, hey, I'm going to get this set. I'm going to get all the errors, too, and I'm going to try to find even more errors. So it's still a set that's talked about. It's still a set that's purchased. It's still a set that's traded. Right. Go after them. But we're not talking about that set. We're talking about that one chase card from that set. And this is why I didn't even think about that card as the fourth card for my hockey card Mount Rushmore. And the reason is, is because a lot of collectors haven't seen the card. A lot of the collectors maybe know about the card or they heard about the card. But in order to be iconic, you have to be recognizable. Now, if people saw it in the case, they might be like, oh, yeah, that's the pro set hologram that I heard about. Heard about, right? I never even saw one until eBay. I never even held one until I bought one from eBay and had it shipped to me. And I I bought a lot of Pro Set in the 90s, in the early 90s. I filled a 5,000 count monster box full of all my Pro Set doubles, triples, quadruples. Never got that Stanley Cup hologram. 
So even though I feel like the card is important because, A, it is possibly the most sought-after hockey card from the 90s. Maybe it's the most important hockey card from the 90s. Maybe it's the most valuable hockey card from the 90s, not counting something that's numbered to 10 or numbered to 1 or something like that. Just like something with a print run of 5,000. But I did not even think of that. So do you want to hear what my fourth card is? I mean... I'm surprised. I thought this was one that you would have thought of, but okay. Your fourth card might be one of my consolation ones. I personally am not a big fan of the Bobby Orr rookie card, but it's important. It's significant. It needs to be on the list, right? And like you said, the 51-52 Gordie Howe, not a great looking card by any means. My favorite is the 63-64 Parkers with the American flag in the background. That is like my favorite hockey card quite possibly of all time, or one of my top five. Just such a beautiful card. But got to go with the, the Mr. Hockey rookie card. So my fourth, and I thought about this. I had to kick this around back and forth because I was thinking to myself, well, this card is good. This should be the fourth card. But then this card of the hard this part, right? other player should also be on the list. But then I'm thinking, okay, am I judging who's the better player? Because I had it narrowed down to two. And so it came down to, is this about who the better player is? Or is it about what is the better hockey card? And so I had to choose the better hockey card. The card that needs to be number four on the hockey card Mount Rushmore. And that is the 2015-16 Upper Deck Connor McDavid Young Guns rookie card. Yes. Now, hear me out on this. Wow. Never expected that. Seriously. Not at all. Not at all. From, from you? No, I, not, I did not expect that at all. No. Go ahead. I want to hear your explanation. Okay. This is basically the must-have or the it card for current hockey card collectors. This is like a must-have card. Are there cards that are worth more? Yes. Are there cards that are more sought after? Probably. But as far as significance of this card, that can't be debated. So, Connor McDavid single-handedly drove the rookie card craze during the 2015-16 season. Now, I was thinking, well, Sidney Crosby did the same thing 10 years ago in 2005-2006, right? But 10 years later, it was an entirely different animal. Hockey card collecting was a lot more popular in 15-16 than it was in 5-6. True. It's a card that gets graded a lot. It's a card that gets asked for a lot. It's a card that people want. So many collectors have told me they want a PSA 10 Connor McDavid. I've heard so many people say that. I've seen some of those at shows. I've had some people offer to sell them to me. Here's another reason why this card is so damn important is that remember when EPAC came out in early 2016, it was January of 2016. And remember remember what the launch set was for EPAC, Upper Deck EPAC. Yeah. It was Upper Deck Series 1. Yeah, all the 15-16s were, that was the first round of EPAC. Right, and it was so it was 2015-16 Series 1. So people wanted this card so bad that basically this was the first year since I started collecting hockey cards 
where retail outlets did not have or had a very limited amount of retail packs because the retail boxes were going to the hobby shops because there was so much demand that the hobby shops were like, hey, we have 15, 16 Upper Deck Series 1 hockey boxes, and if you want a hobby box, it's $120 or whatever. But if you want a retail box, it's $72, right? And that was the thing, is that you had a lot of the places like the DA Card Worlds and the Steel City Collectibles and, you know, Blowout Cards and such were basically buying up all the retail product as well as the hobby product. Yet there was still a lot of retail because I remember going to Target and buying a bunch of tins. I bought so much Series 1 that year, I did not get one McDavid. I mean, when the card came out, it was already selling for $275. I don't know where that number came from, but that was kind of like the price that it debuted at when I was on eBay because I was always looking for one, right? And it's $275. Then it was, you know, 300, then 400, then 500. Then he got injured during his rookie season. Then it kind of went back down to like a $100 card. Then it went up again, you know, and then EPAC came out and then there were more of them on the market. So there's no shortage of this card on the market. We don't know what the print run is, but you had retail, you had a hobby and you had EPAC. And, you know, as long as there's demand, a deck will keep printing them if they can and keep sending them out, you know, shipping them out when they can. McDavid's card basically drove hockey card collecting and rookie collecting. I would argue made rookie collecting what it is over the past eight, nine years. I mean, yes, Crosby is a significant player, definitely going to be in the Hall of Fame, etc. Ovechkin may break Gretzky's goal record. And of course, his hockey cards, his rookie cards are already very valuable and they can only go up if and when he breaks those records. But the McDavid card is just so damn important for the hobby. That McDavid young gun. That is just an iconic modern card. And its release in EPAC really pushed EPAC and made it grow. And it, like I said, it, that card just kind of kicked off the rookie craze even more into orbit and kind of made it what it is today. Hmm. That's an interesting take. And, you know, I hesitated to put a quote-unquote modern card on the list. Right. Because I could not, in my mind, I hear what you're saying now, and I can understand why you did this, but me, I couldn't reconcile in my head that the McDavid Young Gun, the Ovechkin Young Gun, or the Crosby Young Gun, if any one of those was more significant than another, I couldn't separate that in my head. And part of that is because you have 10 years on two of those guys versus McDavid. So you're talking between 05 and 15. And you, the point you made that hockey collecting was a much more popular and bigger um, niche as part of the collectibles world in 15 is absolutely correct. Because the hockey world, I mean, 05, 06, We've talked about that numerous times before. Right. I mean, we were coming out of a lockout. There weren't really widely distributed hockey cards the previous year. So it took a little while. I mean, look how many people like didn't even bother with 0506 upper deck until a few years later. Until they realized, oh yeah, there's 
Crosby in there. There's Ovechkin in there. But yeah, between the three of them, yeah, those all three are very iconic rookie cards in the modern era. I just couldn't, I couldn't split the three of them apart. It's hard to do. It's hard to do because they're all great players for different reasons. I mean, similar reasons. They score goals, they get assists, and they're team captains, and they're all going to be in the Hall of Fame. So similar reasons. But I think with 0506, Crosby and Ovechkin, they really appealed to the hockey card collectors, but maybe not the collectors outside of hockey as much until now. I feel that like with 1516, even though hockey was still really just among the hockey collectors, it wasn't like it is now where we're getting people coming from the outside and investing in it. I feel that there was more hype around McDavid and more early demand for his rookie card. Like right from the get-go, there was demand for his rookie card. It's never been lower than $100, and that was when he was injured. I remember when an Ovechkin rookie card, a Young Gun rookie card, was like a $60 card. You know what I mean? I remember turning down a Crosby Young Gun for 100 bucks Because I was just like, eh, I could probably find it for 80 right? I, I'm still regretting that. We all have the purchases that we wish we made. But the thing is, is that McDavid's rookie card, his Young Gun rookie card, always had a lot of value. And like I said, it dipped down to about a hundred when he was injured and then it just climbed back up and it continues to climb up. I mean, we're talking about a card that's like $600 raw, maybe $700 depending on condition, maybe a little less if it's not as pristine or people don't think it can be graded or receive a high grade rather. But because that card pushed hockey card collecting to new heights in 15, 16 it pushed EPAC, and then it became like the card that everybody wanted when they started collecting post-pandemic. They'd look and say, oh yeah, Crosby and Ovechkin, those guys are greats, they're legends, but this McDavid kid is only 22, and oh my God, he's amazing. He can only go up from here, right? Those other guys are in their 30s now, but this guy, he's not even 25. I want his rookie card. I want his Young Guns card, because that's what everybody says is the best card to get even if it is or isn't, you know, that's debatable. Some people well, be like, oh, an RPA is the best card to get. I'm you certainly know? not arguing the desirability of the card at right. all. It's just, I couldn't reconcile between the three of those guys, so therefore I couldn't put any of them on. Because in my mind, I'm like, okay, if this was Tim's Mount Rushmore, I probably would have picked at least one different, if not two different. Right. But because we were saying this is the Mount Rushmore, this has to represent all of hockey card collecting kingdom. That's the other reason. Because if you can't go with one out of the group, I don't think you can pick any. That's why I couldn't reconcile. No, but I get it. And I and I understand your point, And you made a, a very valid argument there. I still wouldn't change mine. <laughs> oh, trust me. I'd like the Mario Lemieux rookie card much better. And I like I Mario too. as a player more, but my I Mount Rushmore would certainly have that card on. Right. But the thing is, is that he's not as collected, maybe not right now, as McDavid is. Do people want his rookie card? Heck yeah, they want his rookie card. Don't get me wrong on that. But as far and as just and like, you know the reason for that, too. Yeah. The vast majority of the collectors that are be making a beeline for that are new 
These people haven't seen Mario Lemieux play. They've barely seen Crosby play. So I think some of these players are getting pushed out. Look, you, you brought up that this is desirable, is graded, not graded, everything. While you were talking about that, I wanted to look up just because I mentioned about how many Stanley Cup holograms got graded. Uh-huh. You know, PSA has graded almost 4,200 McDavid Young Guns. How many? Almost 4,200. Wow. BGS has graded almost 10,000. So between the two of them, just the base, number 201, McDavid Young Gun. Between the two of them, they've graded a little more than 14,000. 14,000. Yes, 14,000. Think about that. These aren't numbered. So if they were, they would at least be numbered out of 14,000 if every one of them was graded. Right. So that kind of tells you how many are floating around out there. Because, again, is this a base card? Well, no, it is a short printed card. But technically, it's kind of a base card. You know, It's the base rookie card. So, yeah, it is short printed. But to see that there's that many that have been graded by the two biggest grading companies, that blows my mind. For a pretty modern card, that's, I would say that does give it a strong stroke of significance. I mean, again, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of them out there. It's not like a super rare card. It's just a super significant card. Important player, yes. Sought after card, yes. Valuable card, yes. Has some outside factors that make it important, as I've talked about, yes. So that's why that's my fourth card on hockey card Mount Rushmore. I'm not going to argue with that one. Like I said, we could have filled a nine pocket page of Mount Rushmore hockey cards. Yeah. But that'd be too long of a podcast. And besides, there's something interesting about four. I thought it was really cool that the first three that we had, it was just like no contest. We both agreed on that. We kind of had the same reasoning. You, You had some perspective that I didn't have and vice versa, but we were in agreement on those three. And then we struggled with the last one because it's like, well, there are players that we like more, but doesn't necessarily mean their card is as important or important enough to be etched in stone. Right. It's hard to argue with those first three. And like I said, with the Gordie Howe one, I mean, yeah, you can make a case for that 54 tops one as a better looking card, but Definitely the 51, 52 is more significant, and I think it deserves to be up there over that other one. But yeah, you know, I, I said I had like a, an also ran, you know, the Lemieux rookie would be on mine personally, but I think if you're going to argue significance and importance of a card, it's kind of hard not to put the uh, George Vesna rookie up there from the, yeah. from the, the Imperial Tobacco card because, yeah, that's an iconic set because it's you know, one of the first, like, set sets that you could yeah. really put together. See, I struggled with that one because if you're going to put that on the list, what do you take off? Right. And if you're only going to have four, it's kind of hard to knock those other other ones off. I mean, sure, plenty of people are going to be like, ah, take your 90-91 Pro Set card and stick it where the sun don't shine. But I have a hard time with that one. I think more collectors today can identify with that hologram versus that tobacco card right or the mcdavid versus that tobacco even more so the mcdavid i guess right you know over the pro set and the tobacco card right 
because you know younger collectors newer collectors that weren't around back in that era they had no idea about that i can tell you though i knew about that card when those came out because everybody advertised it pull the stanley cup hologram pull the stanley cup hologram nobody i knew pull it i remember one dealer one time i found a, a guy had one mm-hmm. in, his, in his case mm-hmm. that he claimed he pulled out of a pack himself okay but, that was the only time back then that I ever saw one. Not until I was at the, I want to say the, it was the Chicago National in, would have been 03, 04. That was the next time that I actually saw one live in person. All right, Tony, last thoughts before I wrap this one up? No, I'd be interested to hear if any listeners have their own thoughts or anything. Definitely hit us up on social media and let us know what you think the Hockey Hotties four cards on Mount Rushmore should be. Yeah, absolutely. We want to hear what you think should be the four cards on the Hockey Card Mount Rushmore. So you can find me at Puck Junk on Twitter. You can find Tim on Twitter at TheRealDFG. So thank you for listening to the Puck Junk Hockey Podcast. And until next time... Like what you like. For more hockey goodness, follow us on Twitter at Puck Junk.